Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the brilliant Yamaha YZF-R7. The highly competitive Supersport R7 that's comfortable too is now available in white for 2022. Check out the gorgeous YZF-R7 at your local Yamaha dealer or of course at yamahamotorsports.com. In this week's first segment, editor Don Williams introduces us to the new 2022 Honda Monkey. The Monkey is a smaller sized motorcycle with tons of retro cool. Honda made some big changes to the motor for this year and Don gives us his ideas on whether the Monkey is a viable motorcycle for adults or just a kid's play bike. Neil Bailey is back for the second segment with his friend and award-winning photographer Kieran Ridley. This is the second and final part of the telling of their recent visit to Ukraine. Not everything is bad, of course, and Neil and Kieran saw some uplifting and positive sights too. However, some of the extremely harrowing things they did see and now talk about in somewhat graphic terms are potentially very distressing. So please, exercise caution if you think you might be upset. We can only hope and pray that the violence and suffering of the Ukraine people comes to an end soon. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully-fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Honda has a all new monkey for 2022. And uh, it's, it's interesting in that it looks very much like the old monkey, but it really is like a new monkey. And if you can't tell, I like saying monkey. <laughs> it's, just, it's just fun to say monkey all the time when you're talking about a motorcycle. It's the Honda monkey. And that has to help sell the bike. But, and there's no, there's no letter associated. There may be some letters associated with the model name, but it's not something that they, they, generally published so it's just the monkey so you know just like normally we would say the you know cb500x a bunch of times and it wouldn't sound funny we will say monkey a bunch of times and we're just saying monkey because it's a monkey right good job it's not the monkey p0x right exactly so (laughs) so the monkey for the people that the few people that probably don't know the monkey is honda's kind of like mini bike that they uh it's a street legal small motorcycle, uh, 125 cc's that is just fun. You know, it's just a little bike, physically small, and it 
is very enticing to new riders or older riders who remember the Honda Mini Trail from the 1960s and 70s, which is what the looks of it is based on. In fact, it looks very much like a 19, say, 1969 Honda Mini Trail 50, but this is a completely different motorcycle and one that's much bigger. Uh, if, if you've never actually seen a monkey in person, you've only seen the photos and you're familiar with the Honda Mini Trail, you would think it's like the size of a Honda Mini Trail, but it's not because the Honda Mini Trail is pretty small and it was made for kids. The monkey is made for an adult rider. You know, it's a full size, uh, it's a full size motorcycle, but kind of not a full size motorcycle because it has small wheels, but the ergonomics of it, while compact, are not cramped or tiny. It's, it's very comfortable to get on. But let me just quickly kind of run down what they've done with the new monkey and how it works. And, uh, you know, for the people who uh, I'll do a little spoiler or beginning monkey is super fun to ride. If you ever have a chance to ride one, ride one, you would love it. it it's just it's just fun. And uh, but anyway, so what the, the, the big news that got everybody excited about the, the 2022 is that it's a five got a five speed transmission, uh, which is great because the old four speed was good, but the gaps were bigger. So when you're trying to accelerate away from a uh, red light, you had to really be on the gas to make sure, you know, sure each shift didn't drop the revs too much and that you'd stay in front of all the Teslas and, and the other cars that are bearing down on you. So they've given uh, the five speed allows a lot more flexibility and allows you to keep it more in the power band, but that's not the only change to the engine because it's a new engine. They, uh, they took the bore and narrowed it down by uh, 2.4 millimeters. So it's a, a smaller bore and they uh, lengthened the stroke by 5.2 millimeters. So, and this, again, this is just a 125. So those numbers are actually fairly big. So it's more of a long stroke motor. Uh, so it's about having more torque. In fact, it's, it's way under square. It's a 50 millimeter bore and a 63 millimeter stroke. So this, this is a, a, a torquey 125 which is perfect for getting around town because you can just turn on the throttle. You don't have to rev the snot out of it to get it to go anywhere. Although if you, if you wanna go fast, you do have to make that monkey rev and you do have to get the, the RPMs up and it, it will do that. And even though it is the long stroke motor, it's still, it still revs. So they, uh, and they also, they put more compression in it. So it, it's, everything was about torquing it up so that it would be easier to get off the line, to get going and to, you know, keep out of the way of other vehicles. Because when you do ride the bike, you feel a little bit more vulnerable than you do on a full-size motorcycle. The main reason is you're sitting lower. It's not as low as you might think. The seat height is 30.5 inches, which is actually higher than some Harleys. And so you are, theoretically, you're sitting higher, but you're not on as big a physically big a motorcycle and newer riders can handle that little bit higher seat height because the bike weighs only 231 pounds instead of say 500 or 600 pounds like a, a big you know a, like a sportster so at 231 pounds this is a light motorcycle that anybody that would even think about saying hey i'd like to ride a motorcycle on the street can handle but you know that again, you're you're down low because it has 12 inch wheels at both ends. You know, 12 inches, not not too big, and the suspension travel is about four inches front and back. So you're not again, you're not raised up really high. But this the seat on the monkey is super super plush, big fat 
seat. And the reason they put the big, big fat seat on it was so that, you know, you have more leg room, you know, it'd give you that room to the foot pegs that you would, you know, you'll, you wouldn't feel cramped if you're, you know, I'm, I'm 5'10", I'm not especially tall, but not especially, you know, not particularly short, but I don't feel, like I said, if the bike feels small, but not cramped, like you're not, you don't feel awkward. You just feel like, oh, this is a small bike. Well, this is fun and it's cool. And it is, it is cool to ride. It really is a new motor. Uh, although it's still air-cooled, fuel-injected as it was before, it's the same configuration. It's, it lays flat to you know keep the weight, <laughs> the center of gravity, such as it is for such a light back bike low. But it makes the bike super maneuverable. Uh, the chassis got changed too. They shortened it by the uh, wheelbase by an inch and a half. And even though they have the same rake and trail as before, so the bike just is a little bit more agile. And I had mentioned the suspension travel at four inches that's also up a bit. So you have a little bit more suspension travel, shorter wheelbase, torquier motor, and five-speed transmission. So those are kind of the big, the big changes that you have to the bike. And all of them, you know, they make it better. I would have thought that making it shorter would be like a bad idea on a bike that small, but it's, the Monkey is still completely uh, stable at speed. Uh, top speed on it, you know, it depends on who, who's on it. If I'm on it, it's maybe 52 miles an hour. I think if Kelly gets on it, it goes up to 53 or 54. Uh, you know, you, so you can't take it on the freeway. Uh, it's not legal on the freeway, I don't think. It, you can't, it can't be legal on the freeway. So, you, you know, you, you have to stay on, on surface streets. And even then, if you're on a, a surface street over 45 miles an hour, you're going to feel like, you know, you're tapped out pretty close, pretty much. So, you know, part of being safe on a motorcycle is being able to accelerate away from problems. And if you're over 45 miles an hour, you're not really accelerating much. So, uh, you know, you have to rely on the brakes and the bike, the monkey has uh, twin disc brakes. So it, it slows good. The 12 inch wheels are fat. So they have a good footprint and it has a bit of a dual sport look to them. Now this isn't like a, a TW 200 where it's, you know, TW 200 is actually a, a dual sport bike where you can go off road. The, the monkey has a low slung exhaust. So, you, you know, you, if you went on a dirt road, you'd have to really be careful to make sure you didn't smash the, the, the exhaust on it. Uh, but if the road's good, the bike would actually, hit, you know, with those tires and its size and the way the power's delivered, it would actually, you know, be a pretty good dirt, dirt road bike. If it's a good dirt road, not a four by four dirt road. And so even though it does look like the Honda mini trail, which, most Honda mini trails were never ridden on the street. They were all just dirt bikes for kids. This is definitely a street bike. But it, what makes it, you know, so it's, it's a super fun bike to ride because you get to twist throttle as hard as you can. I mean, you're going away from a stop. If you're hitting a green light and you need to get going, and especially if it's on a road that has, let's say, a speed limit of 40 or 45, you know, you need to get up to speed. You're, you're on the gas all the way, you know, you can pin it and that's kind of fun. You know, it's like I'm pinning it, it's shifting. And uh, the five-speed is a manual five-speed, which is one of those things that I can't quite understand from Honda. Uh, they, they have the centrifugal clutches that they use on ATVs and other motorcycles they've used in the past in a Super Cub. And so I can, I'm not sure why they didn't put a centrifugal clutch on the bike, because that was what the Honda Mini Trail didn't have a, clut, a manual clutch. And that brings in a lot more people to ride if you don't have to have a 
manual clutch because that's a skill you have to learn. I mean, yeah, you have to learn to shift and that, but that's not too bad if you just, you know, click the lever, you kind of can learn that pretty quick. But the, the clutch is a slight uh, impediment to getting new riders in. So I'm, I'm surprised that it has a manual clutch, but uh, you know, the clutch isn't hard, you know, to pull or anything, you know, you can ride all day. You know, I've gone on just basically all day rides through town and it's just, it's just an enjoyable motorcycle to ride. You feel cool. Uh, I was, you know, I'm a stoplight. A guy pulls up and goes, oh, what year is that? And then you tell them it's 2022. They go, oh, man, I got to get one of those. And I go, oh, yeah. And, and then you, they say, well, how much is it? And the price is only $41.99. I mean, that is just something that somebody can just go buy. Like, they don't have to plan. You know, some people do, of course. A lot of people, they don't even have to plan their purchase. They just, you know, say, hey, I want to have one of those. I'm going to get one. It's cool. So how does, how does the monkey compare to the Grom? Because obviously they're both from the same stable. Right, right. Well, we actually have a Grom and monkey comparison coming up. And I don't want to ruin it for everybody by telling you everything. <laughs> but yes, they are, okay. very, they are very close. They have the same motor. Uh, the chassis are different. Uh, the, the big a big thing is the seat is different. The pipe is a true low pipe, you know, street bike type pipe uh, on the Grom. The monkey, the pipe goes down because the motor is is flat. You know, it's not it's just pointing forward instead of up like you normally get. So the exhaust comes down, does its little thing underneath the engine with no protection, and then then it has an up pipe just like the old Honda Mini Trail. So it looks like a scrambler kind of thing. So really, if you there's kind of maybe the short version of this is this is a scrambler. And the Grom is a street bike. Okay. But they're very, very similar in how they work. But they're not the same, which is which is kind of fun. Right. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, to, to to tell a little spoiler, you know, either one you're gonna you get the same utility out of it. It's just kind of mostly going to come down to uh, what how you see yourself and what you want to be seen riding around on. Although the Grom does have passenger pegs and you know room for two whereas the monkey is it's a solo monkey ride but they're basically the similar they're basically similar size machines yeah yeah i mean when you jump between them you know the seat height again the seat's a little bit different the ergonomics are slightly different but uh like i said it's like the difference but it's not even as big a difference between say a honda cb 500 f their naked bike and the cb 500 x uh adventure bike there's a bigger difference between those two bikes, even though they run, you know, basically the same chassis, different wheels and, you know, different other things, but basically the same bike. These two are closer than that, but they are not the same, you know? And so, but basically if you want a, the retro scrambler look, you would buy the monkey. And if you like this futuristic street look, you'd buy the Grom and you wouldn't be giving up much. The Grom's a little tiny bit faster, just a little tiny bit. And it must be, the different tires just having these plain street tires on it maybe they're a little bit lighter or there's something about the you know circumference of them or you know it's like a one mile per hour thing but but it's it is different the interesting thing is that that kind of answers my next question in as much as there's a whole slew of of aftermarket parts for the grom um you know tuning parts and exhausts and pipes and all kinds of things and so if they if they've got the same engine or similar engines, then presumably there's a whole 
bunch of stuff that's available for the monkey as well. I mean, it's it's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to be a universal fit between the two. So if you do want to, you know, tune the monkey a bit, sounds as though there's going to be plenty of stuff. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, ultimately, I I think the Grom is more for the people who want to modify the bike. Uh, you know, it comes with all the different stickers and stuff and things that you can do to make it look different. Whereas the monkey is very much about the retro look. You know, anybody would put a sticker or repaint the tank is crazy. That tank looks exactly like it's supposed to look. And it's it's got chrome fenders at both ends and chrome around the uh, headlight. And it's got a little round speedometer, whereas the Grom has a LCD big readout. You know, the, so there's a lot of retro things going on on the on the 50. <laughs> this is funny that we call it that because you know when you look at it, it really does look like the 50 on the monkey that you know you kind of wouldn't want to change like i can't imagine you know you're kind of buying it for that that up pipe with the chrome cover over it and yeah if you could get if if somebody would make like a, a hooker header which was a popular uh aftermarket exhaust for dirt bikes in the late 60s and early 70s if somebody had a hooker header type pipe that they threw on the monkey that would probably be popular with a lot of people and that would look cool but the, I, I think the monkey is more hey keep the monkey like the monkey and if you want to go fast and run around with your friends and, you know strafe the streets then you would the grand would be the way you'd want to go the monkey is, is is the the cool cool retro they put a lot of work into making it look right and that's kind of the cool thing about it is that they 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 did succeed with that yes i totally agree and i totally see your point um i i was thinking more in terms of um of engine performance obviously if you um do ride the monkey around quite a lot like you say it's it's never going to be a freeway capable bike but there are definitely people that would say oh just a little bit more power would be nice and so the fact that there is is an aftermarket for the grom and they've got the same engine um is very encouraging because it means that um, the monkey will have those parts too. So you can buy your monkey, you can keep the retro look and all the cool stuff on it, but you can get a bit more performance out of it if you need it. Yeah. And as I was talking about the, the color, the, the way it looks, we have the one we have is banana yellow. Now, how cool is that? <laughs> it's banana yellow. What other possible color could there be for a monkey than banana yellow? Except that it, it does come in pearl black, but you know, come on. If you're buying a monkey, you want a banana yellow monkey, in my opinion. I can't even imagine buying the black one. I'm, you know, I look at a picture of the black one. It looks okay, but the banana yellow is the one you want. Back, but back in the seventies, I mean, they had the uh, the metallic red. Um, they had the metallic blue, that sort of turquoisey blue. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if Honda came out with a couple of alternate colors as well. Yeah, they had. I think like back then it was Tahitian blue, and like they had very very flowery names for them and <laughs> of course and they were they all look good so the black is kind of like oh, if you want a black one i guess you can you can go buy a black one but boy i would buy the banana yellow because monkeys demand the bananas yeah so it doesn't <laughs> like it's a, even though it's retro it's it has led lighting wow even though the dash is round and has the, the old school look it's not a mechanical dash you know mechanical speedo it's it's lcd setup and so, you know, it's not an old bike, you know, it's got electric starting, it's got EFI, you know, you're not getting some kind of cheaped out weird thing. If you're looking for something that's really inexpensive, the Honda Navi is, 
is the bike you would be looking for because that's what 1831 some odd number 1831 dollars or something like that right whereas this is 41.99 which is a little bit more you know that's more than twice as much but you're getting you know a lot more you know a lot more more motorcycle for it and uh if again if you live in an urban area or suburban area this bike gets around you know it's not fast it's never fast you're never going whoa this is a little fast you know or whoa i've got to pay you know you're always pounding on it but if there's no traffic around you're not having to you know hit the throttle wide open to get around you know you only do that to get out of the way initially from you know other cars and you know it is a little tricky when you know you're in traffic city traffic where there's just a lot of cars going a lot of directions you'd feel a little bit more vulnerable because again uh something like a harley or a honda shadow might have a lower seat height but it's a physically bigger motorcycle so it, you know it's just more visible and it, it's louder you know those are you know 750s 8 883s a lot more noise going on there more, more to see and this bike it's kind of like you and this little thing underneath you that's again not so little but st still much smaller than a, a regular motorcycle so uh there's that i mean i would think this is the kind of motorcycle that if you know a kid lived in college you know, I mean, the, 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 those bird scooters and the lime scooters have kind of taken over there. But if somebody is not into that or wants a little bit more flexibility or, you know, something like the Honda Monkey is, is really cool. And the Grom is great. And it has that futuristic look that you're looking for. But, you know, everybody likes the cool retro look. And, you know, you enjoy coming up to that stop sign and having the guy goes, oh, what year is that? Oh, wow. You know, and then being very excited that it was it was new. And, you know, I ride a lot of motorcycles and, uh, you know, not every motorcycle you ride, does somebody roll down their window and ask you questions about it. And that was actually multiple times that people would look or say or wave or the monkey is a, a happy motorcycle and it makes the rider happy. It makes the people who see it happy. Uh, I was riding on the sidewalk for some reason. I can't remember what it was, but, you know nobody looks at you what are you doing you know they're like oh look that guy's on a monkey and so it's it's cool because everybody likes to see monkeys and you know we i posted a picture on facebook of uh, the monkey and the grom you know we just rode up past the parking spaces and parked in front of the pizza place and nobody came out and said what are you doing no 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 they were like oh those bikes are cool you know because they're not taking up a lot of space if it was too you know street glides they'd be like hey hey get those out of the way people you know these are like two little bikes and they go oh look at those those are so cute oh look at that cute little monkey you know they don't even see the grom it's kind of funny when the two of them are together people really focus on the monkey because of its retro look and it's cool and it's got chrome and it's banana yellow <laughs> and so the only thing i did want to ask you um from a specification point of view is is what what's the suspension like? I mean, obviously, I'm sure it's uh, not adjustable, but is it uh, is it capable of sort of soaking soaking up uh, all the various street bumps and all the crap that we get on our surface streets nowadays? Oh no, no, it's it's semi-active suspension. There's a very sophisticated. No, it's not. Actually, <laughs> it's it's just it's not adjustable. It's four inches of travel, which is actually pretty good. And when you're looking at at a 231 pound bike and four inches of travel it 
actually soaks up bumps a lot better than any cruiser, for instance. You know, it's just when you have like the, you know, the drainage bumps or potholes, you got to be careful of potholes because the tires are small. Right. You know, the 12-inch wheels, you know, a pothole, the circumference is not that big. So you kind of want to be a little careful about potholes. Right. But it is a fat tire. So, you know, you're not, you're probably not going to damage the rim, but if, if the pothole is too big, the whole wheel falls in. Right. So got to be a little wary of that. But as far as like dips in the road or just unevenness, the suspension is actually really good. Works really well. It's, you know, it's a Honda. The fork is an inverted fork, which is kind of funny, a little bit, not quite the retro look, but it still looks good. And, uh, you know, the disc brakes are excellent. Again, you're talking about 231 pound motorcycle. So, and a fat tire so the brakes work good the suspension works good you need to be careful how much body english you put in you know you kind of you kind of almost want to do it all with your arms and not lean in because if you lean boy that bike moves you know because your your weight is kind of close pretty close to the weight of the bike <laughs> so and because you're up so high above the bike you know it has you have that so much leverage on the bike you have to be a little wary of that uh but you know a new rider they kind of don't know that is that's not their way of riding. You know, they maybe come from a bicycle where you're not like leaning in or anything. You're just kind of static on it. So if you stay static on the bike and just, you know, steer basically with counter steering, it, it, it handles really well. You know, it's, it's fun on even like Mohan uh, drive, you know, you kind of have to be a little careful, keep an eye on your, your rear view mirror for fast guys coming up, but, uh, you'll be easily, you know, you're easily going to be keeping up with the average driver that goes on there. And if you're aggressive, you can, you know, you run into, actually you run into the one disadvantage. If I'm up there on a sport bike and somebody's poking along, I can pass them, you know, in a snap, but on this, on the monkey, you got it. It's, you're not going to pass anybody in a snap. So you're kind of stuck behind them. So that's, that's the one little disadvantage of it. But uh, if you get a clear a clear track ahead of you, you can actually go pretty good. You know, there's again, there's a lot of rubber on the ground. It's so light. Uh, you know, you just keep it keep working the transmission to get the most out of it, and it's it's just super fun because you're being a very active rider. But you don't want to overly you know, body English it. Uh, it. It just it just it just feels a little. It just actually probably if, if it was yours you got used to it you would do that a lot you'd probably be able to drag your elbow because you're already so close to the ground you know but initially it, it's just it just feels a little flighty you know and part of it's that they you know shorten the the wheelbase this year it's you know it's a little flighty not not it won't be flighty to a, a new rider and it'll just be for somebody coming off a, a you know experienced motorcycle rider that's used to, to doing more being more active on the chassis so it's like, hey, hey, you don't have to do that much. I'm just a little guy, I'm just a little monkey, and you don't have to wrestle me around. Just let it go, and, uh, and that's 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 part of the enjoyment of, of riding it is that it's super agile, you know, and lane splitting is easy, and nobody's looking at you like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, you're not making any noise, and everybody's like, oh, that's so cool. Oh, look at that bike. Oh, look, it's banana yellow monkey. <laughs> everybody is happy about the monkey and uh nobody ultimately though is happier than the guy riding it you know it's just like 
just riding it is fun yeah and motorcycles are fun you know and it's a different kind of fun than being on a you know super duke r and going down mulholland highway and zipping past everybody that's that's fun too but this is a you know again if you're in the uh urban areas or suburban areas it's just a a highly practical little guide that you can use you just for for personal mobility you know they they talk about that all the time now personal mobility that's what this is you know it's, yeah you're not going to carry a lot of stuff on it you're not going to even carry a passenger but for just getting around and parking wherever you want and like i said multiple times i just ride up on the sidewalk park it in front of the the, the build the business and nobody says a word you know right whereas again if i was on a full-size motorcycle they hey what do you get that out of here you know right right they're just they're just they kind of like that it's there people look at that oh that's cool and then they want to come into the business and see what's going on or this cool business that has a monkey in front of it yeah so sounds good all right sounds like a really fun machine i love it There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Neil Bailey is back for this second segment with his friend and award-winning photographer Kieran Ridley. This is the second and final part of the telling of their recent visit to Ukraine. Not everything is bad, of course, and Neil and Kieran saw some uplifting and positive sights too. However, some of the extremely harrowing things they did see and now talk about in somewhat graphic terms are potentially very distressing. So please, exercise caution if you think you might be upset. We can only hope and pray that the violence and suffering of the Ukraine people comes to an end soon. Yeah, well, we, we'd stopped because we, we came into one of the um, uh, columns of tanks that had been destroyed. Um, and we pulled um, the bikes to the side of the road and that was kind of like quite an interesting experience because it it kind of become a bit um bit of a landmark for, for me had every loads and loads of people were stopping by the side of the road to have their photographs taken next to these tanks they'd climb on it and do selfies and and i kind of found that interesting in itself and um I think you were you were you were taking some pictures or talking to somebody, and I, I was sat with with Andre next to the bikes, and suddenly these two two bikers rolled past, and they saw saw our bikes, and they pulled over and turned around, and one of them was riding a GS as well, 
and um, but they're Ukrainians and then the other was riding this small little Chinese bike type like a mini adventure bike with luggage but I think you know it's really sort of it's only like what like 125 200 200 cc maybe yeah and um, yeah we started started talking to them and and they were real bike bike nuts and what was really interesting was that uh, the, you know they were just out out for a ride and um, the one guy with the smaller with the smaller bike you know he he had you know he had a, a proper uh, jacket with um, body armor on and he introduced himself as chainsaw his nickname was chainsaw and um, it transpired you know through the conversation why why that why that was and he had put a chainsaw engine on this tiny old you know motorcycle frame and and he started showing us pictures of him literally sort of lying horizontally on this bike going flat out with this chainsaw uh, motorbike which the police had actually impounded at some point you know um because we wanted to go and see it you know and, and see him ride it but the the, the police it was the police had impounded it somewhere but we were talking and talking and, and you know they they basically said that they would take us around and, and you know they wanted to take us to this uh, a motocross track in, in Butcher that had been hit so by um, by some artillery and, and destroyed and um, and then just literally you know we explained you know we were talking about what we were doing and, and you know they wanted to take us around basically and, and, and show us the the parts uh, and the people that they knew who'd been who'd been hit and and to have a, a local's perspective you know, Andre was great in terms of you know but he w wasn't from from that area particularly so we, you know we're looking at from an outsider's perspective but you know there this is their home their their community and um, yeah that that sort of started a really interesting you know afternoon well actually a couple of days really because yeah we yeah we hooked up with him the next day as well and um yeah he you know roman was just an incredible guy he and his his story himself you know he had lost he he had no job at the time you know, because he worked for a large polish auto importer um they had a huge warehouse completely you know, taken out and yeah just completely destroyed you know and you know so he had lost his job and his livelihood and um, we went back I think that the last evening that we were with him that was our last stop he took us to his you know, mm, mm. the place that he worked and it was super emotional for him you know? well because soldiers had died there his job had gone his people yeah he, you know he'd lost colleagues in, in, in the attack and um, yeah and and obviously what it what it meant for him on a, on a really you know personal level the fact that you know you talk to him about what what he would do what he you know and he was struggling i think i think what's interesting with rome was i mean he essentially ended up being a refugee helping refugees and using his motorcycle mm. because he had evacuated some elderly people from urban mm. um under shelling his house had been hit but not destroyed he was basically a refugee in a school in a, in a quieter area and during the day he would get on his motorcycle and ride to these refugee centers making lists of what they needed and then going and finding the various NGOs and, and organizations that were helping to ensure that 
they were more detailed in what they were taking to the refugee centers. They weren't taking things that weren't needed and they weren't going without things that were. Mm. And over those couple of months, he figured out a way to be useful to the cause, which was, I think, every person in Ukraine had a very similar story about finding a way that they could do what they could do to help. As a refugee, living in the school on a mattress on the floor with his motorcycle, mm -hmm. under threat. And uh, I think he, like you said, from the personal perspective of the things that he showed us over those next couple of days, I mean, the motocross track in Butcher, which has had world events completely just destroyed. All the shops, the changing rooms, the showers. The, I think they'd sort of put the track back together. But they had, they had a lot of debris that they had to clear from the track as well. Yeah. And the thing also, when you were standing on the, the hill at the motocross track, was looking across all those apartments down that big long line. Mm. Some of them were missing the top, some of them were missing the whole side. I mean, how many people were just you know, displaced by that and killed by that it was nobody's business, you know? So it was a very interesting time. And then you know, it's later on in the afternoon, oh, just head into Irpin for pizza. Mm. And we ride into beautiful city square, I had an interview with him, we sort of had pizza at this lovely restaurant. But we got stopped at the checkpoint. Remember the checkpoint? Which was, that, that was, yeah, in, interesting in itself because we were riding through these um you know sort of suburban areas because what you don't realize about urban it, it, it's actually a, it's a really nice area you know full of big pine trees mm. and, you know really quite well developed and and you know these cool you know what i guess in europe or in the states you'd say like you know very middle class kind of um suburban neighborhoods and we we came across one checkpoint, but it was unique in the sense that it it wasn't a, a military checkpoint. It was a checkpoint run by kids, and these guys was like eight, nine, ten years old, and and they were they were toy guns, to, to, little barriers, yeah, Nerf guns, and they stopped every car, and they, you know, questioning everybody who who was in it. And I remember one girl <laughs> was particularly vociferous. Actually, she she was the most feisty. I think of the of the band and um but what was cool was they would make them say bread the yeah. word bread in ukrainian pana panavicha it's yeah, not like panavicha yeah, because yeah. apparently russians can't, can't say, say it. it and yeah. we were watching them they were getting money for the for the soldiers yeah and they were making the people in the car and everybody in the car was very good about it yeah and then that beautiful thing at the end <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because what, what did she say? She was saying, because the, it was a line of questioning, and it was, it was the bread question that, that I can't pronounce. But the last question from the little girl was, who is Putin? Yeah. And the answer is, Putin is a dick. dick. <laughs> <laughs> just this nine-year-old girl, and Cosandre just loved it. No, they, they were great fun. and um, but, yeah. but again, you know, these beautiful kids, how horrific that our children would have to play checkpoint mm. and interview people coming to the neighbor to make sure they weren't Russians and to be armed with, even though they're toys, guns, mm. protecting their neighborhoods. We want our kids to be riding bicycles and, and playing games, you know? Well, I, I think it, it speaks really volumes in terms of the, the you know, when, whenever the conflict does, whenever the war does end, you know, mm. the, the legacy of it, especially amongst the younger generations. I remember being in an orphanage in, in the Viv and, and 
these kids were um they were just drawing and and pretty much the majority of them you know i think at my kids and they would draw flowers and landscapes and sea and skies and mm. you know, that sort of thing. these guys are drawing tanks you know guns, guns. a lot of buildings you know yeah. and and that that was pretty much universal through the the whole class and it wasn't it wasn't a boy thing it was it was you know across bo boys and girls and so yeah easily like 70 80 percent of the kids that were drawing there were drawing you know a military uh and you know either guns or tanks you know so i, I think that legacy that you know on the younger generation and don't forget you know that apparently you know the numbers of displaced children uh, massive through the, uh, uh, absolutely huge and we met you know met a, a school to you know when we were passing through poland um uh elena who was a former kindergarten worker that we met met in poland she was saying that she she was from kharkiv and just she had 20 20 of her children only one of them was in kharkiv mm. was still there the, the rest yeah, they're the scattered country. all over Europe, they're scattered all over Ukraine. I mean, the yeah. displacement of the children, I mean, the families who were killed. Well, it splits in, in you know, don't forget, because the, the most, most men can't leave Ukraine, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But um, those being split and separated from their parents, well, you know, from their fathers, so their mum takes them out of Ukraine or to Western Ukraine or a different, different part. Yeah, I think that those mental scars, you know, will live live on and on for generations it was yeah it was an interesting couple of days with Roman I think from his personal story to you know we really dug deep in some of just the most massive devastation we saw that one apartment block it was just toast mm. multiple stories blacked out destroyed um, you know you had gone after that story about the one older man with Andre, mm. and I was with uh, Roman waiting to go look at those apartments, and that yeah. lady came, and a very beautiful lady, very elegantly dressed, mm. you know, probably 40 years old, and she was just so quiet, and Roman didn't speak English, and obviously my, no Ukrainian, but what we pieced together was that she had lived in the apartment, she was still looking for a friend who was missing. And there was just one moment where it all was quiet, we couldn't communicate. You're just looking at this devastation around you. And she's just, she would look up and just shake her head. And then I would just see little tears come in the corner of her eyes. It was like, really, that was about the most you saw, most I saw in, you know, people's upset. They were so stoic about what was going on all the time. And that was really moving. And then we went to her apartment, you know, and there's the whole corner of her apartment blown out. So mm. you can see out the door and bricks lined up where snipers had taken positions against mm. um, Butcher. Mm. Um, and that sense of powerlessness, you know, what do you say to that lady? I mean, we gave her a hug. I mean, you just, you know, <laughs> hey, sorry your apartment's blown a bit. Sorry your friend's missing. Sorry your life's destroyed. Uh, yeah, very. That was again. There's always it was always an in and out of sometimes being really tough and sometimes being really just amazing. Mm. And you know, the power of people's stories and their resolve was just incredible. I mean, the guy at the motocross track—they put the track back together. You know, 
I think that's that's definitely. I mean, the, the strength of people. I mean, you you can't. Everybody, literally, everybody's got a story. Everybody's been touched in in some way, and though mm. you know they're not kind of like little, you know, anecdotal bits. You know, they're really powerful stories. I mean, everybody we met, whether you think about the, you know, the veterans we met in the Viv who with the Missing horse riding. I mean, just unbelievable, incredible, incredible stories. You know, we, you met the the guy, the butcher, in um, who talked about. You know how he, you know he would make sure that his family were were in the basement. They wouldn't leave if anybody got out. It, it was him. He had those two experiences with the Russian. Well, they tried Russians. to shoot him twice. Twice, yeah. And all he could do was hug me. Yeah. And I told him he was the most handsome man in Ukraine, and then we were best friends <laughs> forever. But yeah. even in that, I mean, you're reca you recounting the story of how they threatened to shoot him twice yeah. with. Smile on his face. You yeah, know? just sat outside having a beer on the, on the street. Mm. Yeah, it's really, um, yeah, and and, and and you know that, but that sense of, I don't know, it's very difficult to put into words, but it's a real solidarity, and and a real quiet, unspoken strength. You know, no bitching or moaning. No, or, nothing. You know, no, no poor me. Yeah, and and no no real, you know didn't really they didn't sort of launch into a massive diatribe against Russians or any, you know, that 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 whole sense of the bare, barely spoken about you know and it was just you know we'll be here but we, while we we'll, what and while we we're in Kiev obviously we got to interview Anna mm, and yeah. she's got to forgive me for never she actually she was the she's had a podcast on um, if you've been listening to these podcasts, you'll have already heard my interview with her. And you know, one of the things that she said is, "Look, the, the trainer, look, you can be angry, don't hate, because when you hate, you've lost. Mm -hmm. They win when you hate." Mm -hmm. And just amazing, amazing stories every day and everywhere. And that whole thing with Roman was really just being led, one thing coming to another. You know, the the butcher who'd been shot at led us down the road to the liquor store yeah. with the lady that took us around to show us the destroyed area behind her house yeah. you know which obviously you know another story and then it just one thing sort of led to the other yeah. but that that was a general theme throughout throughout our whole journey mm -hmm, through Ukraine mm -hmm. because once we once we left Kiev you know we, we had the same experience in the south yeah because what were we about three or four days in Kiev? Well, we did have the one day in Kiev where we actually sort of did the city walk. We bumped into your journalist friend Roman. We had some breakfast. Mm. Um, we went to sort of shoot some of the beauty of the city. Which I well, think it, it was, was a Sunday too, and I was really keen to try to capture, you know, the religious aspect, especially especially in Kiev. Um, mm. That's when we went to Sofia. Yeah, Saint Sophia's again. Amazing, amazing buildings, and um, what was very interesting as well, you know, the sun Sunday prayers and mass, and you know, we met one soldier who was deploying the next day mm. um, to eastern Ukraine, and he he was there so lighting but, candles in the church. Yeah, yeah and and uh, he, you know, very pensive and and understandably. Um, well, and two, you know, this, I don't know what to call it, the juxtaposition, the roller coaster, the emotional journey, you know, 
it's a beautiful day you're looking at this incredible architecture these beautiful churches and there's the you know, sandbags here and there and you're a little bit you know and then we walk into this one like vestibule area and there's a Ukrainian choir singing and they were harmonizing and it was one of those moments I don't know I, I always I guess growing up with old churches and cathedrals in England and Europe I, there's something about singing in cathedrals or choirs to me that's really moving and they had this lovely beautiful three or four minute song that we just stood there sort of transfixed and then we went into another room and there's signs on the wall and we're like what is this and then all these beautiful elegant young ladies very nicely dressed very sort of sitting there and they're all widows whose husbands have died on the front line and there's a Canadian aid audience or Canadian aid organization who is helping them with um, financial support as they continue to live their lives without their husbands. So again, you sort of like this flip flop all the time of one room you're, you know, uplifted by this beautiful music and this beautiful environment, and then bang, you just hit again with the reality of these lovely young ladies having to live their lives as widows and raise children alone. Yeah, it's very, again, yeah, the contrast is, you know, everywhere you look. And then you got to shoot a wedding? Yeah, that was very interesting too. Yeah, of a, of a, a serving officer. Uh, that was quite a grand affair and he has, um, his unit were there as well to celebrate with him. And um, yeah, that was, that was really, um, and then they all, all, took a, an oath as well you know, to to their I think to, Andre said to their unit um, or yeah, to the a special, yeah a special yeah. unit um, and that was that was very touching again just like really kind of quite understated strength you know and what's really interesting too is the mix of backgrounds you know the faces that you look around and especially for me you know photographing you, you're very conscious of the characters that you've got there a really broad spectrum of of I th of ages, backgrounds as well. Mm. All set against the backdrop of this most incredibly beautiful old church or cathedral. Mm. But then t to the left of us was this m monument of blown up Russian military equipment that they've brought to the square mm. as an exhibition of the damage that Ukraine has inflicted upon the Russian forces with little children running around on it and people photographing it like it's a it was a tourist attraction it's just so yeah but I, I think you know that's in, to a certain extent kind of understandable it's, you mm. know, have to, it is a country at war is the, the capital as well you know they went to right at the beginning of the war that was a very um, you know they, they went through a particularly tough time there as well um, and only recently has the you know the, the strikes sort of petered off a little bit mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah you could you could completely understand that but um yeah it was very interesting experience in, in kiev and, and when we set off to the south um it was different again you know what what we what we met there was was um yeah 
again well Odessa was our destination I mean mm. of course we rode through hours of sunflowers and beautiful countryside <laughs> I'm a little bit what did we do that day? Because we left it, at yeah, but We had breakfast with Roman in the morning. Yeah, we had we had a leisurely breakfast with Roman, which was really nice. A diff, different Roman, not biker biker Roman. This was journalist Roman. Yeah, yeah a friend friend of mine, a photographer who's um, had worked with in Hong Kong, and he's Ukrainian, and he came back. He came back. Yeah, he surrendered his freedom around the world to come back for his country. Yeah, I mean, he lit, he came out of the 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 Olympics um, uh, bubble in 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 China and literally came straight back at the at the beginning of the war and again because he's a Ukrainian national Ukrainian man it's now difficult you know he can't leave mm -hmm. um, which again he's affected because he hasn't seen his girlfriend in five months and he doesn't know when he'll see her again mm. which might not sound like a lot but try being away from your girlfriend for five months with no knowing you know yeah very, 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 very difficult mm. you know, but it was it, it, you know that was you know it's, it was good to be able to to see him, um, and then yeah, the the ride down was was very long. Um, I think it was yeah, it was quite sort of like four five hundred kilometers, I think, to to Odessa, some, mm. something like that. And yeah, and and we had that that sense that you know through rainstorms and then through sunflower fields, and it was amazing. The first time you see this beautiful field of sunflowers, it's like wow, it's amazing. And then, uh, come the end of our trip, you'd seen so many fields of sunflowers. It's like it's just another field of sunflowers. But yeah, we reached Odessa fairly late at night, actually. And again, but Odessa had just been just been hit, and there yeah. were sirens and air raids while we were there. And yeah, we and, and local motocross <coughs> club came out to meet us and took us to dinner. And I think also the security getting into the city was remarkably, it it, it was at a different level to to what we'd experienced before. Mm. You know, we you know we got pulled over twice, and you know properly, you know our our credentials and and everything were really. And they good. took the time. I mean, they so, they yeah. pulled us over. They went through us yet. I mean, they were, mm. and they were big checkpoints. I mean, yeah, they were not messing around. Yeah, and and then we rolled into rolled into Odessa and, and um, curfew again as well. You know, mm -hmm. I think that was one of the nights that we. I think supper was a bag of chips and some peanuts and a candy bar. Oh, that's right, because the motocross guys were trying to take us to dinner, but we didn't get ready in time. Yeah, we just li literally, by the time we parked our bikes, had to, you know, decamp, you know, get all our stuff out, get into the hotel, yeah. Odessa was a little bit freaky for me because there was so few people, a lot of people have evacuated, and, you know, I could see the ocean mm. from where we pulled in, but the massive military hedgehogs and barriers, and there's no way the military were going to let you get anywhere near the ports. They were very, very, very secure. Yeah, and and I, I think because they they realised that they you know if you look at the uh, the way that the front is moving westwards across sort of south, you know it was just you know the the next sort of the next city in line was Mikolaev, and then after Mikolaev, it's Odessa. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they were they were having strikes as well. You know, right at the beginning of the war, they were really under threat, and there were fears of a of a of a uh, invasion force coming from the sea. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it and I think you know ever since the beginning, they've you know living in tension, knowing that you know. 
when is it coming and it's not it's not if if, if it's, it's when, when. yeah mm. um and yeah i think I, I know what you mean about sort of the it, it was it was strength this very beautiful you know for all intents and purpose you know mediterranean city with very few people yeah empty streets quiet nothing yeah the big moon came up and it's just completely quiet curfew there's no people yeah by by nine o'clock it was just you just never see a city like that do yeah. you? without life and movement so yeah that was that was um that i think that that was different and then because we, we went to Mikolai the following day but we i think we made a really smart decision to leave the motorcycles Mikolai had been hit what 25 strikes right before we went in yeah and i think you know going into that you know we're getting closer and closer to the um to the front line um you know the russian troops weren't a million miles away and, and you know Mikolaev, 90k's yeah mm -hmm. Mikolaev is is really sort of it was quite hot at the time and i think you know it's um going in on motorbikes is not really necessarily a smart move well i think our decision was if the shit hit the fan without radio communication it's a little difficult between one car and two motorcycles to completely smoothly communicate and we would be better all together in one vehicle yeah the decision. Um, yeah no absolutely My, being able to communicate not being split up having our vests and helmets in the car ready to put yeah. on um, because you don't really want to ride the bike with the vest and helmet um, because they are really heavy I wouldn't want to crash in that no, no. I think you do more uh, and you know just from every every level it made absolutely yeah you're more vulnerable it was it'd be a particularly dumb thing to do i think especially when we have our andre in the car it's much better for us all just to, to be together you're also that way much more aware you haven't got the ha helmet on you can actually you're more aware you can hear things mm. all all those all those type of things um so yeah it was it was a smart move we arrived so like nine ten o'clock mm, mm. and again we had to go through the security procedure because it was much local more localized we needed authority from um, on a local level not not just the, the national level that we i found it quite stressful um in an odd way that you know we're in the car we're driving into obviously a, a very hot zone and we're on our phones trying to get paperwork filled out mm. for local authorities again. Mm. And of course, you know, struggle with some checkpoints going in. And, you know, suddenly we're reading, I don't know how many pages that waiver was, mm. about what we weren't allowed to show. Mm. And it was incredible. You know, what you can't say, what you can't show, what you can't photograph, what you can't share, what you can't do with social media. I mean, they're really, really rigid guidelines on what we were allowed to do in Mikolaev. Mm. Very, very tight, you know. Um, I think you can understand to some degree why. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, it's very difficult. You know, you've got an outsider's perspective and I think you can only respect the conditions that they that they set in, in, uh, in place, really. Um, but, you know, sadly we, you know, it was a particularly um, bad day if that makes sense because they they had been hit 25 with 25 you know different reports varied some said 15 some said 20 some said 25 
hits in the city in the early, early hours of the morning and we arrived the first place we went to was the a residential block that had been hit um, and yeah and, and suddenly all the even though it was just very few hours before that had been been hit you know the cleanup operation was really in full swing mm, you know? mm. lots of activity lots of energy um, everybody just trying to you know patch up board up windows clean away glass you know um, yeah rescue things in the wreckage yeah which actually led to probably one of the more amazing stories that we came across in the whole journey was the 75 year old man that had completely lost his home and workshop I and mean, everything was just destroyed and charred remnants mm. and somehow his 1965 Vespa had survived yeah and um, he proudly rolled it out yeah and it, it's strange it's sort of the, the motorcycle thing keeps following us around mm. every everywhere we yeah go. he'd owned that Vespa for 57 years since he was 18 which and Miller brought up a really good point was how in the Soviet times did he manage to get that Vespa and get it and keep it because mm. we did not see another Vespa in Ukraine but it, it was beautiful you yes, know absolutely yeah. absolutely mint you know he had mm. he made a few of his own oh he'd restored it I mean it was it yeah. kind of hand painted and he'd got his modifications but it was an original 1965 hadn't been mauled had been repainted had the seat been recovered and yeah. he'd added lights and things and yeah yeah but, but how stoic was he oh yeah I mean, you're standing in the, he was next to the smoldering ruins of his house and business. And he's chatting to us and letting us take videos and pictures of his scooter. And his daughter was running around the ruins. And, you know, she had found her old baby clothes, which she was going to donate to a charity. Yeah. They were still good. I mean, this is literally hours after these people have lost the, the everything. Mm. Yeah, it just, yeah, it doesn't. It's hard to get your mind wrapped around it. Yeah, very particularly difficult. I mean, amazing to see if anything had survived that. You know, it was just, mm. and I'm not entirely sure how he managed to pull it out. You know, but yeah, it was like a magician's trick. It was um, very lucky. Um, but yeah, and, and the speed of which the whole, and and I think what was sad. Very, very sad story yeah. very poignant too was you know this was his life and he was literally not only had it been destroyed but he was racing against the clock that you know because of the fact that it had been hit so hard you know the, the civil authorities were going to flatten it the next day yeah they were literally going to clear it and um, you know so he had you know that, that amount of time to go through everything and 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 literally pull what he could from from the wreckage and but again i mean just strong strength not not really complaining you know no no tears you know just i mean andre said he was even getting into a bit of grief with his ex-wife at one point about whether or not he was going to go and live with her you know and she wasn't going to take him back yeah Which, you know, it, yeah it's the human element is still there yeah. I, I think one of the they did produce one of the really sad stories the old lady that we did the portraits with her daughter was uh, translating she's an English teacher a uh, lovely lady and luckily somehow her mum had been in the back of the house when the front got blown through and she didn't make it she passed away a couple of days later and I can only imagine shock I mean she didn't speak while we were there and 
I photographed her through the window when we first got there and I think her face was the picture of what I was feeling like bewilderment as to what we were seeing and that poor lady didn't make it and I just it's got to be the shock and you know, her age to be have her apartment blown to bits and to see everything gone like that and it's you know obviously there are very sad stories everywhere every day mm. uh, yeah I, I really um, I really felt for her and when you look look back at the photographs too mm. you can you can really see it in her face yeah she was gone she had checked out at that point of life I think she was just staring blankly I don't think she knew what was happening the, probably the violence of the explosion and the shock yeah it was um, yeah very very difficult and you can't you can't really imagine that experience unless you're in it I don't think no and you know especially there you know it, unlike in uh, there's not a huge culture in changing changing houses or everybody that we seem to met you know they had a story and a legacy well she had raised her children there yeah she'd be married there lived there raised her children there got her grandchildren there I mean that was her home she'd been there but it was it was the same for the the lady that we met in Irpin she'd Mm. been there since the 1960s her husband and her built the house together Mm. Mm. you know it was the same with uh, the the guy with the Vespa as well you know he and and it, it's it's always you know it's huge and I remember you know my experience back in you know when I was photographing the bushfires in Australia it was the same same there you know people building their houses or gen- generations growing up there losing everything yeah yeah it's it's not just it, it's not just the fact that you you know it's not like you lo- lose the you know the rental apartment you're in you know these are you know, family so, homes yeah re- real stories and, and mm. really family homes and it's in the tourist respect but very sad to hear about her passing mm. yeah we obviously we'd we'd gone to a school after that which kind of brought on another level of bewilderment that I was looking at this massive amount of damage I mean like just cratering a whole school and then they said that mercifully that bomb didn't go off I'm looking at the damage thinking that was some ammunition mm. that didn't explode mm. and what would have happened if it had exploded that was super super tough and you know of course we left there and we were going to the hospital when the air raid sparked up again and yeah. that was a very very tense time Andre was really you could see he was really under a lot of stress because you know, they'd just been hit 25 times. You, you don't know if they're going to hit the hospital again. Where do you go? What do you do? Do you leave the city? I mean, the, there was quite a lot of sort of instant debate in the car, wasn't there? What do we do? Yeah, you know, and um, it's there's never really a particular safe area, you know. Um, and, and I think as we've seen this really hit and miss where you think would be safe might not be safe and mm-hmm. vice versa but yeah that was you know tense you know Andre was really tense I think I think he was very relieved when we wheeled out of Mikhailov later later in the day well I think that was another you know I hate to use the word amazing you just you you know, we put our vests and helmets on and went and sat in the park and I guess the collective thinking was let's get as far away from any of the buildings as possible in case there's a hit and then of course the area 
clear came and just the relief I think when we were all leaving Mikolaev that night we're just jamming down the road we're playing music on the stereo there's a moon coming up on the one side the sun's going down on the other on that piece of land it was this incredibly unique experience of almost like this freeing experience that every mm. mile we got away we were a little bit safer and we're getting treated to this amazing sunset and moonrise at the same time going across this piece of land that again the emotion is just really changing again yeah i mean that you know i think that the journey was filled with all these little moments you know and it, it's just this contrast all know? the time all the time and uh, yeah the other you know takeaway is it's really it is an amazingly beautiful country like really there are very few places in the world that you can see on your right hand side the sun setting mm. and on the left hand side the sun rising literally you know right on the horizon the moon know, coming you know, up the sun going down yeah you're at sea level it yeah. Was, yeah it was um, going across that body of water yeah pretty pretty spectacular but kind of just a juxtaposition of like while well, you're in the middle of a, a war zone you're not a million miles away from the front line <clears throat> yeah it's um yeah that was but it 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 um it reminds you of yeah that um i don't know it's it's everything is not always as it seems and there is there is beauty in everything and um to take away the the little bits you can amongst the the horrors of what you see in the day i think is uh again simple. i think it was that pressure relief valve like beautiful music beautiful sunset having a good time joshing with the boys i think you had to let it out because mclive was really heavy yeah and it was really stressful you know not knowing if we were going to get bombed seeing the result of bombing early just a few hours before we got there and then you know the kind of the pressure cooker turned up in a weird way the next day because we decided to go down to Vikarlov, which as we found out was literally 25 miles from snake island which the ukrainians have just not long taken back from russia it's been, yeah. a, been some very heavy shelling and i think that was the most stressful checkpoint and tense military because we didn't realize we were, it was the front line there and there was all the trenches and yeah, I, I mean, I think, I mean, it was an area that I was really keen to explore and I'd heard about this little, f it was a, it's a small fishing village, basically. Um, it's kind of jammed right at the kind of bottom, sort of south, southwest of Ukraine, very close to the Romanian and Moldovan borders. Well, yes, you went past the Moldovan border and the trucks lining up. Up to, to, to leave, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, as you said, they're very close to Snake Island, which had, has been a hive of activity since the, the start of the war. Um, but obviously, because of that, this, you know, as a fishing village, they, they've been badly hit in the sense that, you know, they can't... Can't go fish the waters. They can't. Yeah. Their livelihood has been completely cut off. The while they've not seen any direct conflict, you know, in and around their their community in their area, they've they've all been, you know, the the, the economic effect on the area is huge. Mm, mm. Um, and now now especially during the summer months, it's getting towards peak fishing season as well. You know, the, it it's really starting to to take its toll on an economic way, and, and that was a story that I was really keen to tell. You know, very different again from seeing sort of, you know, the impact of you know rocket attacks or, um, 
you know, uh, soldiers on the front line. You know, it, it's a different side of the war that that's equally important, and it goes back to what we were saying right at the beginning about you know how you know it is a large country, but everybody's got a story, and everybody is affected in one way or another. Mm. Uh, um, I was, um, I thought it was really interesting the serendipity sometimes of travel that we found the canal system lucked onto a wooden boat and the next thing we're what, two hours on this hand rowed old leaky wooden boat with these two Ukrainian guys mm. and Andre translating and we're just passing through all these waterfront lives yeah um, hearing these stories and you know I don't know, just quite the adventure. Yeah. No, I, I think it was. And going, going back to the, you know, just the whole, you know, again, they really let us into their lives and, and show us. Yeah, they took know. us on their boat. They rowed us back to their home. Yeah. And during the the, the ride, they were telling us about the economic impact, um, you know, what's been going on, how the war's affected them. Mm their families, they ha I mean, having to cut down trees for wood, for heat and, and, and power, you know. Yeah, getting, getting prepared for, getting prepared for the, the, the winter because, mm -hmm. and you know, that loss of, you know, that, that loss of livelihood, they can't, they can't c collect the, the, the summer harvest, the, you know, that they grew, grow on some of the islands. Yeah, they can't get out to their islands, they keep their animals out there, they keep their plants out there, I mean that's how they make their yeah, living and grow and their food. and it's all, you know, the military scheme quite con tight control of that area because of its proximity to, to Snake Island mm -hmm. uh, and, and, the, and the sea. And, you know, as we experienced, you know, it was, it was quite tense down there, you know, when we, we experienced the, the checkpoint and those soldiers were probably the most on edge that we've that we've seen i think from the whole trip well i mean they pulled us over for quite some time i just remember that sound of that yeah rifle cocking and the yeah. guy just giving us the stink eye i mean he was not what are you guys doing here i mean because yeah. that was where they were living there was their huts there their ammunition i mean and the whole the whole area was yeah it was a hive of, of activity well like you said those great big long trenches mm. yeah but those fishermen were lovely, and, and it was, I think this was one of the biggest tenets of the whole thing, you know, um, you know, we might not be able to raise a million dollars or stop the war, or, you know, I don't know what level of impact we can really have as a couple of guys doing what we can, but I do think, and I hope it's not a statement that's coming from ego, where we say that I think the most important thing that we did and will do in Ukraine is allow people to tell us their story. I think they really need that. I think it's been very helpful. And I'm really grateful that you're patient because it's a long time with people to let them just tell the story. And I think for the people to know that somebody wants to listen and we do have the option like through this podcast of sharing it with a significant number of people in the world. I think it's really helpful and I, I hope it's helpful and I'm not off on the wrong tangent with that thought you know people want to share their story you know and they, they want everybody to the rest of the world sort of looking in to understand what's happening you know and to give them a voice as well mm. um and just you know get give them time I, th I think that that's really important as much as the um it's very it, it's just it, it, it makes them gives them some 
some degree of um, yeah, yeah, empower them a little bit in, in the sense that they feel that they've got a voice. And that someone wants to listen to someone and someone does care. And, yeah, and that can be shared with the world of people, that, you know, all the people that have been commenting and yeah. sharing our stuff. They, people care, they're donating, they're, they're sharing, they're helping, they're sending words of encouragement. Mm. It all builds an energy. I think it's I all think, good. Yeah, I don't think they're acutely aware as well that they're, they're, they really, really need and, and very reliant and grateful for, for the help that, that, you know, the world is giving them in terms of support for... You know, in oh, and very thankful to America for what it's doing. Very thankful to the UK. I mean, they're, all the time, you know, they're really grateful. Mm-hmm. And and they're very thankful for us to coming. You know, it's quite humbling sometimes when they would be, you know, I'm like, hey, don't thank us. We're not the ones living with war. We're just here to try and do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a great experience. And, um, you know, coming out of there was, was, was kind of an interesting ride home too. Um, but of course, you know, the following day was one of those serendipitous things of we just happened to be riding the road towards Vinitza and you saw the combine harvesters and the next thing we pulled in and we're off on this other adventure where, you know, we're telling stories of the grain harvest and... Yeah, because I, I think that day was set to be one of our longest rides. You know, we 660 to, kilometers. Yeah, because... Yeah. We had to or seven hundred. Yeah, leave about four hundred miles. I think we had. Yeah, th- so we had to leave Odessa fairly early mm-hmm. and then cross over because we were meeting with our Omel fixer, and, the, and the film crew in in southwestern Ukraine near the Romanian border. Um, the idea was to meet up with them on Friday, so we had a you know quite a, a large amount of kilometers to 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 cover. But whilst you know. In my mind, whilst we were there and, and for this journey, this um, the harvest basically was a big story that I wanted to cover, um, and especially in that region, it's a very um, agricultural region, um, very arable, lots of arable crops, and um, yeah, and and we saw these two combine harvesters at work, and and uh, literally, you know, it was. Had the ability to pull off the the highway, which was great, and and yeah, like within minutes we were on these combine harvesters, and we spent you know spent some time with them, which was which was amazing, and to hear their stories and understand a little bit more about the you know the developing story and the fact that you know the importance the world um, you know the reliance the world has on Ukraine in terms of being the breadbasket of the world. Um, in terms of the wheat and, and the crops that they produce and also the problem you know that the impact that the war globally is having upon the fact that you know you can't get these crops out mm-hmm. and the harvests out and um and you know talking to the farmers and the impact it was having on them in terms of just the the money that that they were earning you know was you know they were getting about a fifth you know roughly 20 cents on the dollar yeah you know on, on the harvest and, mm. and that you know that makes it well virtually uneconomical you know how, how do they how do they survive on that it's a big part of their livelihoods but they were so lovely and you know obviously i got to go back with the trucks i got to see where the grain was stored and you got to ride in the combine harvesters and mm. beautiful day and it's almost like you're working on this beautiful story in this lovely environment mm. and then you know 
quite fun, um, quite nice, sad for the guys. I mean, obviously we're not jumping around like a bunch of monkeys when we're, they're telling us the hardships they're having. And suddenly I look around and Andre's face, mm. um, he just knew something was wrong. Mm. And I got my camera and I got a video of him and Vinicio had just been hit. And that was right where we were going. We were a couple of hours of that. Yeah. And suddenly everything changed. It just went quite dark. We quickly left, got on the bike, saddled up, rode in. Mm. And those hours riding into Vinicio were like you said, like you're alone, you're on your bike, you've got plenty of time to think. That mm. was an interesting ride. And I think it's difficult for Andre as well. Uh, he Again, he was quite nervous. We rode through a couple of air raids as well as we were coming in. Um, but it was really important that, you know, we got there as quick as we could. You know, I think from a photographic point of view to try to document as much as possible. It was, um, you know, Vinicius would have been considered a fairly safe place. Um, it hadn't experienced any strikes since back in March, you know, and I think these strikes were particularly um, not only unexpected, but they were also very powerful as well. And big, slightly, big, they were big strikes. Slightly, yeah. you know, when when we were there, we were talking to the um, um, War Crimes Commission, uh, you know, and we were talking about the you know disproportionate power. You know, in size of of the the strike, especially given the area, it was right in the middle of downtown. You know, lots and lots of civilian casualties. Um, I mean, when we pulled in, they were saying thirty five dead, sixty five really badly wounded, with a lot more injured. Mm. And um, and you could you could see the power of the blast as well. So we're oh. walking in. It was sort of again. Um, you see. Trams that they were literally just stopped in the middle of the road. All the glass blown, blown out. out. I didn't have the guts to look inside and see what happened. I you just know, couldn't. And then and then you walk slowly closer closer to the this large the the two main areas of impact was sort of a, a cultural centre which was sort of very um, oh like a big museum complex yeah, or something. Yeah, it looked like an old you know columned museum and then this sort of more modern you know tower block. Just. Black devastated. And, devastated. Yeah. and then and then also and firemen on the roofs and there's people everywhere there's water you're walking in broken glass and shrapnel and bits of bombs and and also i think i think the cars that was the other thing you know, the numbers of cars that were destroyed you know just black and charred i mean 50 60 70 cars because it was literally right in the middle of downtown you know but it's like you said it's it's the area of impact like as we were walking in to the scene, mm. you know, and you suddenly look to your right, all the glass gone in the houses, there's curtains blown in the trees, there's shit restaurants, mm. chairs and tables, and you're like, I mean, the impact of that blast must have just been horrific. Yeah, I mean, I think there were three three missiles, there were three ballistic missiles mm. that, that struck. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, yeah, the, pa the power... Um, but again, the contrast, you know, the world, the food people were there set up, mm. even, by, even by the time we got there. They were distributing food and aid to people. You could pick up a lunch, you could pick up water. Mm. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, it, it's, and there was like this real frenzy hive of activity. I think a little bit different to how we experienced in Mikolaev. 
Um, I think because of the scale and also the death toll as well. Yeah. Um, and it, it was it was a, a little bit more more sober, um, and um, and grave. I think. Well, yeah, it's funny because you had said to me, "Did you see the stretcher and did you photograph it?" And I didn't. And I remember seeing the the baby stroller against the lamppost, mm. and I didn't photograph it for some reason. I don't know. I, just, I remember just looking at this baby stroller overturned, and then a couple of days later, I realized that that was the baby yeah. stroller of the little um, girl, the four-year-old girl who had been, I think she was Down syndrome or yeah. special needs child, who had been dead right there at that spot, mm. and so it was almost like it got to hit you again, if that makes sense. Mm. But I think all all around, especially in one of the areas that we spent a long time in, mm. it was uh, quite close to a church. There was a service going on at that point. You know, there were people sat in the park that just died instantly. You know, just sit, sitting on 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 benches, yeah. um, just just on their on their way, just going about every day. You know, and um, yeah, that that was um, yeah. The the scale of destruction was on a different level. To, to what we'd seen previously. Um, it was so fresh, I think. It was still smoking. It was still firemen putting fires out. I mean, yeah, and I, th I think the scale as well. Mm. Know, it was such a the 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 area. You know, when we were in Mikolaev and when we were in um, you know Kiev, you you would see you, you know it didn't. There were blocks, apartment blocks here, block, mm. apartment block, block there, but this this was you know. A significantly large area where everything was hit, mm. um, and uh, yeah, and just the frenzy of people and uh, as well, and difficult, you know, work crews, you know, rescue crews, TV army. crews, journalists, I mean, farm and mm. military people, press, I mean, the war crimes council people that we met, yeah, c civilians mm. um, as well. Um, so yeah, it it was um, yeah that that hit was was really really powerful. Mm. Yeah, I remember Andre was kind of came up with the camera and he just pointed at me. He's like, you, you couldn't speak. I mean, it's just the whole time you're there, you just there's no ability to communicate with. You just look at each other, don't you? It's like I think I think for on, on a you know it's very it's different from us. You know, mm. we both have different backgrounds, or you know, and also we're we're, we're not. We're not Ukrainian, you know. Um, but that—that that was definitely the day that evening as well. He—he he, he was. Uh, it was particularly difficult for him. Mm. I think. Yeah, I mean, I've been in conflict areas, you know, in previous incarnations of my life. But yeah, that was—that was really tough that day. I think. I think also, unless uh, in, in unless it's your part of that that struggle, that you know. You are definitely an outsider looking in, as you know, as much as you like, or you know, wherever you sit, you know, politically, you you know, you can't, you can never appreciate it. No, because we can leave. Yeah, it's absolutely. not like we're not there today. We're, yeah, we're, we're not, out. We're in Paris. You yeah, know. it's not. You know, it's not our homeland. It's not where our families are. It's not where you know our loved ones are. I don't. I don't think you know. It's not. You know. It's not our. It's not the place that we were born and raised. You know. It's not our country. And I think, you know, you can never really appreciate it. You know. Mm -mm. Um, no. 
I mean, you can feel sad and you can have your emotions, but like you said, we're not we're not attached to it in the same way, and we leave we can leave any time. I mean, we're there. Mm. Yeah, we're very fortunate. Mm. Mm. But leaving Vinitsa was yeah, that was not the greatest ride. But it, <laughs> again, we had this really amazing high speed ride to connect up with Amel and the crew mm. on beautiful roads um, with the sun going down and gorgeous countryside. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, and again, you know, we had to cover... Really a large sp- distance before curfew. Yeah, it was like 200 kilometers, 230 kilometers. Um, so we left, we left as it was getting dark. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and, and hauled, you know, 200 clicks, something like that, to, to arrive before 11 o'clock. Mm. This was not easy because of the checkpoints, the towns, the traffic. I mean, it's not just like jumping on the motorway and banging out 120 miles. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's tough. Yeah, tough and, to make and time. also sort of the road, you know, the majority of the road was good, but mm. you know, the road surfaces did change. It kept going in and out, and you had to be absolutely on it, you know, mm. because, you know, when the roads are good, they're great, and when they're bad, they're really bad. You know, big potholes, mm. changes of surface, you know. Um, and, and traffic as well. But, you know, I think, um, I'm, I guess really you know, our last assignment or our last adventure or our last big ticket thing because obviously when we were finished with the next thing we went to Lviv and it was just really get, then getting processed. Mm-hmm. Visit the children's hospital to get ourselves together and get home. Um, which I still was very much, like I, I wasn't even thinking about going home, was to head up along the Romanian border into the Carpathian Mountains to go visit this old Soviet-era listening station, which it was a story that you really wanted to do, something quite different. Mm. And that was just, you know, turn the dial on another experience, like suddenly leaving Ukraine. It was almost as if we went into Romania, that the architecture changed, the complexity of the houses, the porches, the overhangs, the churches, everything kind of condensed in smaller fields. We were started to see animals, cows and sheep, which we hadn't really seen in the more agrarian areas of Ukraine. And it was like we were in Romania. Yeah. And we the, saw the Carpathians for the first time. The mountains, even even the weather changed differently. Not, mm. not in the sense that it wasn't sunny or hot of it. You felt that coolness of, of being in a mountain area mm. and being in mountain ranges. And then the roads changed again. Yeah. Worse and worse, <laughs> worse and worse, progressively worse as the day. Yeah, and, but you know, and then the contrast as well. Well, progressively fun because we were on GSs, even though we had road tires. Yeah, no, I mean that. I think for me, from a riding perspective, that that was the best day. You know, that was the most the most enjoyable. You know, riding off dirt roads, roads yeah. through little villages in the Carpathian Mountains along the Romanian border, mm. and the sense of you felt like we were safe there. It felt like a different world. Yeah. I mean, it, they it, haven't had strikes. I mean, the checkpoints were very light. Um, yeah. You felt like there was no sense of anyone needing to do anything. There was no malintent needed there. It's no. just a rural environment in Ukraine. I mean, it, but it was interesting because we stopped late in the day at the at the um, the last village before our destination, and. Uh, I remember speaking to Emil, and it's like, wow, this is this place is incredible. You know, we'd ridden, I don't know, like 40, 50 k's on dirt roads, I think something like that, at least. 
and um, you know it felt like we're literally in the back of beyond he said yeah that's because we are you know and and he it really it felt totally different like a million miles away from where 24 hours previously we were right in the in the middle of this this missile strike you know and suddenly we're in this peaceful valley with beautiful beautiful vistas it's like being in the alps you know it was it was just yeah totally totally different and And also you know something else that kind of unexpected you thinking that you're in a, a war zone like you know now we have to completely change goals because we we're not going to make our hotel you know we want to go see the balls which are up this dirt road on top of a mountain and you know pulling into this village you know fairly late in the day and within minutes some young lads arrived with a jeep mm. we've booked a ride up to this mountain observation post yeah well we, we needed to get we needed to get up to there and there was some debate about how far how far it was, what the what the track was going to be like. Would the bikes make it? With the bike, because you know we're on road road tires, you know, and slightly pushing it. I mean, some of the some of the gravel sections were a bit sketchy, um, especially downhill. And then, yeah, whether or not we could make it up there or not, and literally, yeah, within minutes we had this young guy in this Mitsubishi Shogun, you know, and it, it was different, you know one guy said there's no way you'd make it up there another guy said you'll be okay you know so we we we, we you know Emil and and um and the guys jumped into them and, and off they they went and we followed on the bike and Andre went off to secure accommodation for us because we had to change accommodation yeah and a beer and a beer <laughs> <laughs> priorities <laughs> right beer and hotel but yeah, no, and so we followed them up, and yeah, and that the sun was it was starting to lower at that point, wasn't it? it was, mm-hmm. You know, we, there was definitely a sense of a race against time because we wanted to get up there before the sunset. Yeah, for your photos. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it was a, you know it was a good hour and a half away still at that mm-hmm. point. It wasn't sort of like a ten minute hike up up the up the the mountain, but yeah, we were, we were riding. We had to cross cross a couple of fords. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it got to a couple of muddy sections. Yeah, and I think it was the, the last Ford, and it was like, this is a bit too much now. Yeah, I just, yeah, I, like you're on high pressure road tires on mud and puddles and gravel and river crossings. And it would just, I think if we'd had knobby tires, but, it, but you know, when we made the decision to abandon, abandon the bikes and jump in the truck, it really did get bad. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if it was daytime, I didn't have all the luggage on. I had um, dirt tires with some low pressures. I would have given it a go to get up there, but you would have been your whole focus would have been getting that bike up there. Yeah. And we had a different program. We wanted to photograph this. But it did highlight how amazing those bikes were. Mm-hmm. I mean, like for me, it was, they were they were just amazing. Like oh, you wouldn't to... you wouldn't have got there on a street bike. I mean, you had to have the GS for that. I mean, but, e- but even then, you know, I mean, just you can ride them on the road, and you know, they were amazing. And then we took them off there; they were they were better off road. You know, they were incredible, and that's on 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 road tires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very very impressive. But that that aside, you know, off we off we went up, and again, that the kind of it we're in this serene mountain section it was beautiful the light was amazing just all these woods you know far 
forests and forest. grass. And yeah, it was everything kind of, there was this sort of like a reality check at one point because, you know, the air raid siren goes off on, on Emil's phone. And, and they're immediately thinking about their families, their loved ones. We don't know if there's a strike. I mean, obviously, it wasn't going to be where we were. Yeah. Mm. And um, yeah, and so very kind of yeah, so sobering, you know, instantly at the you know the, the drop of the coin. Mm. Mm. But we eventually made it up there to this just incredible these golf balls at the top of a, a mountain, and you could see them rising in the horizon. And I think the first. Because we'd seen roughly what they looked like, but the first thing that came to my mind was the scale. You didn't Huge. realize how big they were, and they just popped up on there, and they were massive. Yeah. And yeah, as you got closer and closer, and then and then you walk around them when when we got there, and literally right at the top of the mountain. I mean, the vista was incredible, like three hundred three sixty yeah. degrees. Mm -hmm. And then you know they, they were completely abandoned. You could walk inside them, and you realize that. You know, you know that you're going to the Soviet listening station. So you think it's kind of like very, I don't know, very James Bond, isn't it? You know, the Russians are listening into all these conversations they across can, Europe. You know, and and you think, wow, okay. And you go in and you look inside them, and the way that the um, the sound resonates within it is amazing. But the actual the technology is really simple, you know, and that that was what you sort of took away from it. That actually, wow, it's what a really ingenious idea but it was just they just you know, intercept the sound simple. waves and it just gets transmitted inside the the ball yeah and they're listening and project yeah they had this huge antenna inside that kind of rotated and spun that mm. was still there yeah you know, um, and bizarre but it seemed to be like mostly cattle that seemed to use these places now as a shelter what i think was really interesting is is omel is an incredible historian for ukraine and, and the soviet era mm. and had given some amazing insight into what as essentially, he had been raised Soviet, mm. and his parents are very Soviet. Mm. And obviously, that's a whole another discussion about the mindset of people of a certain age that grew up under the Soviet regime. But the fact of how important that Soviet part of life for Ukrainians even today is—I mean, you know, here we were looking at a, a '60s, '70s period of Soviet occupation of Ukraine, and here we are again. You know, that ended, they got independence, and now we're back with the Russians trying to do the same thing again. So it was a very interesting dialogue with Amel about what those balls meant, what that listening station meant, what the history it is for their country. And, and don't forget, it only, they only stopped working there relatively recently, like nine, 95, 96. Whenever the independence came. Yeah. 90s, yeah. yeah, and and that's not a million like for me, you know, that's within my lifetime. I can remember what I was doing. You, you know, that yeah. doesn't seem like a million miles away. You know, not mm -mm. that long ago. Mm -mm. Um, yeah, and I think you know, I'm 60 years old. I've set foot in a few countries around the world and had a few experiences, and to ride up into something completely new that I've never seen before, never experienced before. With this deep historical significance to it, it was quite. A, it was again just another powerful hour or so. I hope mm. you uh, were able. You felt like we we're a little bit late for the light for your photographs. Yeah, it would have it, ideally. You know, from just purely an aesthetic point of view, it would have been. A bit Had we earlier. not been on the road twelve hours when we got there. <laughs> yeah, because we set off really, and yeah. that was a long. Because 
no one actually really knew, quite knew where these golf balls were. Mm-hmm. You know, so Andre and Emil were saying, oh, yeah, it's a uh, couple, of hours, couple from, of hours, couple of hours, couple of hours. And it kept, every time you stop, you do a couple of hours, and it's still a couple of yeah. hours. And, and, you know, it just kept going on and on and on. And it was like, we didn't go to the place we got the Jeep, it was like 7 p.m. Mm. It's like, well, you know, we got another hour and a half from here. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, where, you know, really, how close are we? No one really quite knew where, where they were. Which was interesting because because we came off in pitch black, mm. we had to ride the bikes out through that dirt yeah. in pitch black. Yeah. Andre had found that really interesting. Someone had just built a guest house with all these rooms, and somehow, you know, it was sort of eleven o'clock at night. The 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 patron and his wife show up with potatoes and 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 schnitzel and and some yeah. beers, and and we're all sort of absolutely yeah. wasted sitting around the table looking at these dirty, tired faces tucking into this incredible meal. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 home produced. You know, they mm. were their chickens. They were, it was their their potatoes. Right. That grown and yeah, because we had a film crew with us now. And I don't know if we mentioned that when we we're going into because Emil is creating content uh, media out of Lviv. That's his job, and this will go in multiple languages around the world. And they wanted to make a feature about you know a couple of Brit journalists arriving on motorcycles and traveling around. So um, ultimately, we will be able to post some links to that filming mm-hmm. that they did they had the drone out which was great and gopros and different things and of course you know the the big mission the following day was to get back into Lviv to the children's hospital yeah again which was a fair stretch you know um yeah we had we had what two three hours to get it out of the mountains through the dirt yeah yeah back back to tarmac and then across again and yeah. so grateful to Emil that he kept pushing the meeting at the hospital back because we were just running out of time, running out of time. I mean, we didn't, it wasn't like we were kind of lazy. We left early. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we were on the road by 8 o'clock. I mean, it was... Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got stung. <laughs> you got a wasp sting. <laughs> In the helmet. Um, mm. But we made it, thankfully, and again, an amazing experience at the... It's Children's Hospital in, in Lviv. Yeah, and I'm just to qualify that. I mean, obviously, the whole time we've been riding, we've been soliciting donations through my foundation, Wellspring. Thank you guys for the help and donations. It really has meant so much to the Ukrainian people when they know that we're raising money and so many people have donated. And you know, the reason we chose the Children's Hospital in Lviv was really because your interaction with Sophia. Yeah, I mean, which the, was a tragic story. I mean, really tragic story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, one of the stories that sort of really impacted me the, the most, I think, was that um, I did a previous assignment assignment in um beginning of May and uh, went to visit the children's hospital um, and uh, for a, a feature about this one little girl called Sophia and she had... Um, she was recovering from uh, brain surgery. Mm. She had been um, hit, basically. I mean, the, the, I mean in, incredible again story of you know strength and and persistence and you know what really st- you'd look at the sort of TikTok videos of her th- at the beginning of the year and at Christmas and you know she reminded you of of she reminded me of my daughter you know just dancing around playing around beautiful long hair you know just being being a, a, a usual you know young girl and um, long story short 
she the village that they were in you know they were really quite um under quite heavy shelling and her mum and her managed to escape to her aunts uh, in Maripol, uh, they thought because there was no communication or, or anything like that, um, that they uh, they didn't know where it was safe. So they they thought that, that that was safe, and you know they didn't know they were going from the firing plane into the fire. And you know to cut a very long story short, sadly she got hit uh, by shrapnel um, when they were coming back from a, an aid station one day. Um, and it literally penetrated her through her forehead. It just literally blew the front of her head off, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, and the piece of shrapnel penetrated right through the centre of her brain and lodged right to the back of her of her head near the near the neck. Mm. You know, and, and all, all the neurologists and, and surgeons couldn't believe that she was still alive. But sadly, she was very much um, a shadow of the little girl that you saw on these TikTok videos. Mm. But you know, just very brave and strong at the same time, and um, you know, with just a, another horrible story from of of, of thousands of, of the war. But yeah, so anyway, I I had the from, from doing that feature, you know, you and I, you know, obviously talked about it, and with Emil, who I was with at that point back in May as well, you know, we. Um, we knew about the children's hospital and and could introduce you to it and and um, yeah and, and in terms of the fundraising they're trying to do in terms of developing a new a new section of the hospital to help uh, specifically to do with um, people who have been injured during the war um, it seemed like a very timely and an apt way to kind of finish up and, and, and finish our uh, journey yeah. yeah and and then also start our journey in some ways because now we will continue to fundraise at home for the children's hospital because the impact on those children is just horrific mm. I mean when you're talking to the director Victoria and she's telling you the biggest challenge that they have as a children's hospital is how to figure out dealing with amputations, shrapnel wounds, burns, massive skin loss, all things that they've never seen in children before. And you just, I don't know, you just, you, you just feel glad you didn't eat any lunch before you went in there, because I mean, you'd, you'd toss it up. I mean, you know, and the doctors are having to fly in from all around the world to help the local doctors with procedures that they've no experience with. Mm. And these are little children, you know, and I think it definitely was the right place for us to make our donation. Mm -hmm. It feels very small, <laughs> feels very insignificant when you look at the needs, um, but they were very kindly gave us the time. And uh, we got to spend some time with a young boy called Leo, which was just an amazing experience. Mm. Yeah, he, he's another very brave young man, um, from originally from Donetsk. Serendonetsk, yeah. yeah. And, and a different type of war story. I mean, his injury is not from bombing or shelling. It's more mental. And yeah, I mean, not, not directly. Um, I mean, he was caught up, separated from his mum at the beginning of the war. And, and they spent a long period of time with his grandmother sheltering in the basement of the school until his mum managed to find them and um, well she had been i mean i guess she had been working what, in she, poland? she was away working in poland yeah. and he was at home with his grandmother when the and, war broke out yeah and so she she came back and uh straight away 
but no communication she didn't know where they were yeah because all, all the communications had been lost and and anyway and you know as she'd by one way or another she managed to find them and um, well she went to their apartment they mm. weren't there she took all the valuable paperwork and stuff that was important mm. and literally within minutes of leaving the apartment it was destroyed yeah i mean she was that close to just yeah. being obliterated and somehow she found them yeah which absolutely. is it's just amazing yeah just just you know incredibly fortunate and then they made their their journey you know out further, which further west nobody would ever want to make that journey. I mean, they're under shelling the whole time mm. they're trying to escape yeah and managed to managed to get to to western ukraine they left the country and i think that at that point it was the the time when um, after a while you know you could start Leo sort of started to, to fall ill you know and um, mm. the, she wasn't quite sure what, what was what was happening with him you know lethargic some motory issues um, and so at that point she decided you know she was trying to get um, to get help on a local level but I think you know with language, different country, and just the you know the general. This is still relatively early on in in, in the war. Mm, a lot of refugees, a lot of need. She came back to Lviv, didn't she, to the hospital? Yeah, which is where and during that journey, his condition worsened to the point where he he couldn't walk. Mm. And he was a very fit young man. He was captain, soccer of, player, mm. captain of his his football team. You know, sort of this roaming midfield dynamo. You know. Um, and yeah, sadly, he, he was diagnosed. He had this malignant tumor, tumor, on his uh, in his spine. And um, okay, I thought it was on his leg, left leg. No, he he had um, it was in in his spine. And basically, they the the surgeons had said that um, they felt that it was stress related. You know mm. that they they couldn't be sure. You know how long if it was it, cancer, it, it, right. yeah, mm. how long it had been there. You know, but certainly the experience that he he had had, the trauma had rendered him they, unable to walk. Yeah, yeah, basically had had promoted promoted this, and um, so in doing so, he he had had the, this spinal operation, and then he had thrombosis in his leg, mm. which was which was the the, the latest. Um, part surgery that he was mm, suffering mm. from um, but just yeah again very very um, very strong sense of character brave, mm. you know but but got a great kick from meeting you and you know and now once you know wants, wants to, to ride a bicycle and yeah yeah and he came out to see the motorcycles and put the helmet on and we did selfies and yeah, I was. You, you saw him start to light up, and mm. he sort of started to come around. And you yeah. know, they say you feel like, you know, what are we doing here? Why don't we have more money for them? But I guess we just go do the best we can, you know. Yeah, and and um, I think it, it's one of those things that you know, the more awareness you know, we can bring and, and more more people can help and, and mm. contribute and donate, it, it all goes some way, you know. And I think that the centre of the children's hospital will be um will be really, really valuable. 
Mm. Certainly, I mean, just e- even in in small terms, just in logistics, they're really struggling just to be able to actually deal with the rehab. You know, that that just purely the rehab. Yeah. From uh, of the injuries that. Well, that one of the good news treated. was was I guess the U.S. had passed some law that the children can now be evacuated to America for their follow-up therapy because they just don't have enough resources to rehabilitate all these children. So that's a really nice thing and that they will be able to get help in the States. Uh, mm. Maybe, you know, if at some point maybe we can follow up on that. Um, yeah, I think just wrapping up, that was really sort of the end of our trip. I mean, we had to obviously get back to Lviv, you know, get settled, get loaded up, say goodbyes, and then haul ass across Europe, get the bikes back to Munich. That was a reasonably uneventful mm. story, I guess. It's nice, but I think one of the most telling parts was, you know, as we were saying goodbye to Leo, um, the air raid siren went off, and I just had that thought in my mind. You know, he and his mother have gone through so much to get to to here to have these surgeries, and they're just still not safe. And that was really telling for me, as he's sort of waving his goodbye against the background of an air raid siren, and you're looking at this poor little boy, and you're thinking, "There's no safety for them." You know, it's not like, "Oh, they're here; they're okay." That that was tough. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, as long as the as long as the war goes on, you, we saw that from Venice that a place that you know, you, you would have said was pretty safe, you mm. know, relatively so, it was quite you know quite close to um, Moldova, hadn't been a target since back in March. Not only does it get hit, it gets hit really super hard. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you're right in what you say. It's it's always um, lurking in the you know in, in the back of people's minds. And I think it very much so. You know, if we just to conclude, you know, obviously we we made it out. Everything's okay. We're back in Paris. Um, I think we go in and out of. This has been really helpful today, I think, to sort of go back in and talk about this. But, you know, I think it, it's Andre's comment that just stays with me the most about it. Like, you know, I'm just going to live today. I just have this moment. I have today. It, he knows it can be gone in a minute. And I think, you know, maybe there's a lesson for all of us a little bit in life. You know, live live now. Laugh when you can. Yeah. Enjoy it when you can, because it's not all good. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, be positive focus on the really good things you know, mm. well, uh, you know we're very very lucky in the west oh. I don't think we really appreciate how lucky we are sometimes it's very difficult to get consumed in um, you know in every well, day it essentially life. seems like small dramas when you go in there you know yeah and, and just you know the thing is though it, it's it's just important on any level just to you know enjoy you never know when your last day is, and I think going to places like that make you realise how vulnerable you are, and, and um, also how fortunate you are too, and, and really to embrace every day as much as you can, and, and um, yeah, try to you know in, enjoy life as much as you can. Mm. Well, Kieran, I guess uh, we'll we'll wrap this up now, and you know, down the road there's going to be more stories, more photos, a lot more stuff for us to bring out and we appreciate everybody listening and you know, coming on the journey letting us 
have a, have a bit of an emotional dump and share. Yeah, ramble on. 